Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author or authors of that book. This week I'm very happy to say that we have Bill Beasley on the show, and we will be interviewing him about a new book that he's co-authored with Colin McLaughlin called Mexicans in Revolution, 1910 to 1946. I confess that I don't know very much about Mexican history. That is, of course, shameful because I reside in the United States of America, and Mexico is an incredibly important country to the United States. We share a very long border with it. There are millions of Americans who claim Mexican descent, and we, I believe it is our third largest trading partner. Um, the fact that I don't know, and I'm a professional historian, the fact that I don't know much about Mexican history can only be uh, seen as pathetic. So I was very happy. Um, actually, I'm always very happy when Bill tells me he has a new book out because it gives me a chance to bring myself and uh, hopefully some of you up to speed. Well, th- this book does that in a very concise fashion. Bill and Colin have written a book that can be read uh, almost in one sitting, and it tells you much about the uh, history of Mexico uh, in the first half of the 20th century and really the, the origin of, of modern Mexico as we understand it. So it, it's a terrific read, and you know, Bill's always a, a pleasure to talk to. So I I hope that you uh, enjoy the interview. But before I present it, let me just say a couple of things. One is I encourage all of you to go to Facebook and become um, fans of New Books in History. This is one of the ways in which um, I show the people who support the show that a lot of people are listening. And uh, the second thing I wanted to say is some of you have said that the audio is not of the highest quality. And And that is definitely true because I am not an audio technician, and uh, as I sometimes say, the equipment that I use to produce this um, podcast costs a little bit more than a Happy Meal at McDonald's. Um, I've I've done some things to improve that. Uh, I've tried something today that may or may not work. I've tried to mute my microphone while um, my interlocutor is talking. Uh, Whether that works or not, I don't know, but I'd be uh, glad to hear back from any of you who have input on the uh, the audio question, because um, New Books in History is here to serve you. So, as I said, uh, we talked to Bill Beasley today, and here he is. Hi, Bill. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Great. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. We have beautiful weather here in Iowa, finally. The spring has arrived, and uh, it's about 75 degrees, and we don't expect it to hold for long. You know, summers are hot in Iowa, and that's what we have coming. I, I suspect it's hot where you are as well. We're approaching 100 degrees today in Tucson. Wow. That, yeah, Our that, first 100 deg- degree day, so it won't be long. Yeah, so um, you should head to the swimming pool. I should tell our listeners that um, we're happy to have Bill Beasley on the show again. Uh, this is the second time Bill has graced us with his presence, and we'll be talking about a book that he co-authored with Colin McLaughlin called Mexicans in Revolution, 1910 to 1946. Uh, of course, I have read the book, and um, as I say in my little write-up on the blog, I really don't know very much about Mexican history, and uh, that is a shame because Mexico is an incredibly important uh, partner for the United States. So if I were really doing my civic duty, I would know a lot more, and I should thank uh, Bill and Colin for uh, bringing me up to speed. But before we get to talking about the book, Bill, why don't you just say a few words about yourself? I'm a professor of history at the University of Arizona, and my specialty is Mexican history and culture. My colleague, Colin McLaughlin, is a professor of history at Tulane University, and he also specializes in Mexico. 
together we've written another number of books and we always like to joke about who writes what part. Generally, I claim the verbs and he claims the other parts of speech. So That's we have funny. a good time working together. Yeah. So um, can you just say a few words about what the experience of co-authoring a history book is uh, like? Because actually co-authoring um, – a, a lot of historians will um, write um, – We'll, we'll, we'll edit volumes together, but it's much rarer for them actually to write them. So why don't you just say a few words about the collaborative process? I find it a very enjoyable process, actually. Uh, Colin and I have written three or four books together, maybe five, and we've tried different ways, actually, where we've divided the book up by chapters, and each of us have taken half and then swapped those and then one person will do a final revision to try and give the manuscript the voice of one individual. We've also tried writing a draft. One of us will write a draft. The other person will then take it and polish it and do the final work on it. Um, and then we've also tried just doing our specialties or our interests. I'm more interested in culture than Colin. He's more interested in economic affairs, so we divide up projects that way. And we've been happy with all three approaches. This book that we're talking about today, Mexicans and Revolution, we both wrote um, initial drafts of different chapters, and then I took the manuscript and went through it with my particular view of, of style so that it has one voice. So I would say the final result is much more how I uh, write. And we have a forthcoming book on 19th century Mexico that will be much more in his voice. Well, I can tell our listeners that the book reads as if it were written by one person. Um, I find the pro style very pithy, actually. Uh, it's, it's um, as a professor of mine used to say, telegraphic. Uh, it comes across very cleanly. Um, there's no jargon in it at all. Um, it's, uh, it's sometimes funny, which is, which is very good. And so I, I very much admire your uh, ability to, to work with somebody else and do that. I've, I've never co-authored a paper of this sort, I think. So, And I think more historians should, or at least they should try to. I know my wife is a a mathematician, and they very rarely work alone. Um, co-authoring papers in math is more or less the standard operating procedure. So we'll see if you guys can start a, a trend among historians to work together. But let's go on and um, talk about the book itself. Uh, how did you come to write this particular book? I suppose partly we were driven by the fact that 2010 is the anniversary, the centennial anniversary of the Mexican Revolution. It's also the bicentennial of Mexico's struggle for independence. So 2010, it will be in the news, it will be on television, it will be everywhere. And so that, the awareness of that bicentennial got us thinking about our views of the revolution. And I have wrestled as have anyone working on 20th century Mexico with trying to decide when the Mexican Revolution ended. And there are a whole number of arguments out there, but in this book, we argue that it ends in 1946. 
And, I think it's an actually, Marshall. I think it's an intriguing question: how revolutions end, not just in Mexico, but Cuba, the Soviet Union, other places as well. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that I know in in my own field, that is uh, Russian history. You mentioned the Soviet Union. Uh, it used to be thought that the um, revolution began uh, in 1917 and ended in 1917, um, and then someone suggested that. Perhaps it started in 1905 and it did in 1917. And there's a recent book that's used in a lot of classes by Sheila Fitzpatrick that I think says it began. I, I don't remember when she says it began, but it ends in the 30s. So these uh, the the revolutions themselves are sort of temporally imperialistic. Um, <laughs> we can talk about why you decided to uh, end the book in 1946, but let's uh, begin at the beginning of the tale that you tell with. Um, and excuse my pronunciation. I have much to my shame never. Uh, studied Spanish, but I'll give it my best. Um, Profirio Diaz's rule, you pay a lot of attention to the kind of genesis of the revolutionary movement in the last quarter of the 19th century. Maybe you could just sketch that for us. Sure. The Porfirian regime from 1876 to 1911, when he fled to Paris, was a remarkable period in Mexican history when, under Porfirio Diaz's guidance, Mexico went through a process of tremendous modernization, and like many modernization programs around the world, it was uneven in nature, both both uneven in regions where it happened and uneven in the distribution of its benefits, benefiting a plutocracy uh, enlarged by foreigners in Mexico City and giving very little to the indigenous and rural populations in Mexico. And so it it was this uneven character of the Porfirian development program that ultimately explodes in the revolution beginning in 1910. And... um Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what what the nature of Diaz's reforms were and why they led to an increase in social tensions in Mexico. Well, Porfirio had the idea that Mexico needed to be brought up to the highest levels of world development, and the measure for him and many other people was the establishment of railroads the building of railroads. And so Mexico went through a period of railroad construction um, and following that with modernization in the mining industry, the mining sector, the beginning of petroleum development on the coast in Tampico. In fact, anyone who wants to see what that looked like can look at the opening scenes of Treasure of the Sierra Madre and see Tampico about 1910, uh, with oil derricks and so forth. So factories, mining, railroads, that kind of infrastructural and and, uh, raw material development served as the basis for Porphyrian development. The profits went largely to Paris, London, and New York, and a small elite in Mexico City. In order to make this happen, land was taken from indigenous uh, communities and small rural communities. Workers generally were repressed all over Mexico with 
incredible working conditions and poor salaries and no attention to education or health or other kinds of benefits for the general population. Even provincial elites outside of the capital felt they were not a part of this as Porfirio concentrated his economic and political leadership in Mexico City. So there was a feeling that Mexicans were being totally left out. Um, this uh, reminds one very much of things that were going on in other parts of the world, but particularly, again, I'll return to the Russian case. The um, Russian elite was also gaga about um, railroads, and they uh, built a lot of them, and uh, they went uh, through a phase of kind of proletarianization, which involved taking people off the farm, or to put it in more um, Russian terms, out of peasant communities and sending them to the cities, which caused a kind of burst of um, urbanization, which proved to be extremely important in both the revolutions of 1905 and 1917. Was a similar sort of thing going on in Mexico? Certainly, and I think that uh, one of the fascinating things to try and pull apart is to what extent the great changes in the 20th, 20th century in Mexico have occurred because of the revolution and to what extent they've occurred because of urbanization. Of course, it's some mix of the two, but it's fun to try and pull those apart. Urbanization was taking place um, certainly by the 1880s in Mexico to the extent that debt peonage became increasingly important and repressive to try and hold workers on commercial agricultural plantations instead of allowing them to flee to the city or to flee to railroad camps where there were greater economic opportunities. That's interesting because in a sense the opposite thing happened in Russia. Uh, the, 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 the emancipation of the serfs, and serfs of course held people um, in, in these peasant communities um, uh, under the nobility, uh, it preceded um, the uh, the great the great um, sort of modernization program. But, but but they did have a lot of trouble controlling the uh, that is they that the Russian elite had a lot of trouble controlling rural populations who were flowing to um, the city. And eventually, in Soviet times, they simply instituted a, a system of internal passports that uh, determined where people can. Could could live uh, basically in order to to halt the, the this this uh, this um this 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 tide of urbanization. Um, let me ask you another thing that's a little bit out of your ken and doesn't really come up in the book, but I'm interested and I think our listeners will be as well. Uh, and that is so we see this parallel development uh, between someplace like Mexico and and someplace like Russia in the late 19th century. In the Russian case, this also fostered the creation of really um, well first populist and then socialist and then communist parties that were bent on the overthrow of in this case the the Russian monarchy. Um, what was there any similar sort of development in Mexico at the time? Yes, there are very interesting patterns of rural anarchism um, developing in Mexico as early as the 1880s and then followed most importantly by the what was called the Mexican Liberal Party that Diaz chased out of Mexico and they ended up in St. Louis where the leaders Ricardo Flores Magón and his brother Enrique Flores Magón uh, called for revolution from St. Louis and 
with the cooperation of the U.S. and the Pinkertons and Mexican secret agents, they smashed, that, that group smashed the Mexican Liberal Party. But the leaders escaped, fled to Los Angeles, and then in 1911 invaded and occupied northern Baja California for a few months. Later, they were arrested by the U.S. government, and Ricardo Flores Magón died in Leavenworth Prison. And he's now a, a hero both in Mexico and a hero with the Mexican-American community in, in the Southwest. Was there any um, direct association between... Um, these, the Liberal Party, let's say, or parties to the left, and um, European socialist movements, you know, the, the SPD in Germany or the First or Second International, were there any sort of formal ties? Um, with the anarchists, there, there was. In fact, the anarchists, uh, for the most part, were immigrants from either Spain or Italy. And the anarchists continued to play kind of, I don't want to say a secondary role, but a minor role compared to homegrown liberal revolutionaries. Um, no, not until the 1920s then did the Communist Party um, in Mexico become part of, become associated with the international. Okay, let's um, move on then to the uh, revolution itself. Uh, just take us through, um, and not briefly, um, the, <laughs> because I want to hear the whole story. Take us through what happens in 1910. The revolution really began, began when Diaz announced that he would not seek re-election in 1910, the centennial of Mexican independence. That allowed the, fo the formation of political parties, and various candidates appeared. It, it seems that Diaz was really trying to find out who his opponents were. And then once he had identified them, he sent them off on world um, expeditions to check out the military in Europe and Asia, making them illegal, uh, making them ineligible for the presidential uh, race. One candidate, however, Francisco Madero, um, he just simply didn't take seriously. And Madero was uh, from the north, a very powerful northern family that felt like it had been excluded. Madero himself had studied at the Sorbonne, and primarily he got caught up in the rejection of Comtean positivism through um, Christian humanism and spiritualism. And because of his association with Christian humanism, spiritualism, he was regarded as a, as a crank because he believed that Aristotle would periodically possess his hand and write messages on how to push Mexico forward. So this short spiritualist ran for president campaigned all over the country and built on the political networks of the of the Mexican Liberal Party. Diaz finally took him seriously, had him arrested and jailed. 
He escaped from jail and went from San, to San Antonio and called for a revolution. To begin November 20th, 1910. The revolution under Madero sputtered to life in the north, began to pick up steam as people like Emiliano Zapata joined in the campaign, Zapata's from the south, and others from different parts of the country joined in this campaign. Um, after some, what most people would regard as small victories only, uh, Diaz decided that he was not going to survive this growing popular rebellion and fled into exile. That was in 1911. Um, Madero managed to hold office from 11 to 13, and he was overthrown by a Porfirian military officer who wanted to replace Diaz and establish some kind of a more reformist military dictatorship. Okay, let's let's actually stop right there for just one second, and uh, let's talk a little bit about a couple of people, one of whom you've mentioned, who um, most of our listeners uh, will know about, and that would be, and, and again, this is sort of shameful, at least on my part, because I, I know about these people, but I had never heard of uh, uh, Madero or Huerta, but I had heard about Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata. Um, t- tell us a little bit about their background and what kind of people they were and what they were interested in, because I, I really feel like it's probably the case that most Americans have a very distorted image of who these folks were. I think one of the fun things and significant things about the book that Colin and I just finished is that we try and focus on who the revolutionaries were. So I'm, I'm, interested in your question. Villa joined the Madero Revolution at a time in his life when he was a very successful bandit outlaw in the state of Chihuahua. Um, He's in that category that social historians have recognized as social bandit, as a social bandit. That is, he was supported by members of the community who believed he was unfairly labeled a criminal. And so he had the support of the broad community at the same time he was outside the law. And uh, consequently, when he joined the revolution, he was able to bring people with him. He was a charismatic figure who throughout his revolutionary career, beginning in 1910, until he retired in 1920, continued to grow in significance. Um, Zapata was from a village that had lost its land as a result of modernization programs. In this case, the modernization was a move to commercial agriculture, a move to the production of sugarcane for export, and the village elders chose Zapata to try and lead a campaign to reclaim their land. Zapata was something of a dandy, but he was also incredibly courageous and has become um, a symbol of agrarian resistance of all kinds. The best portrayal of 
Emiliano Zapata, according to his biographer, and other biographers, in fact, was by um, was in the movie Viva Zapata, a movie whose screenplay was written by John Steinbeck, and um, Zapata was portrayed by. Help me out here. Marshall. I, I have I, I, I can tell you that I just don't know because I haven't seen the film, but I'm going to put it in my Netflix queue. Okay, well, <laughs> it's going to come to me in just a second. He was the star of Last Tango in Paris, The Wild One. Uh, that would be Marlon Brando. Yeah, okay. With, you want me to say this so you can cut it? or? No, go ahead. Okay, so Marlon Brando was the, um, played Emiliano Zapata, and his brother is played. Um, oh, forget it. Let's move away from the movie. Okay, I'll that's fine. Remember those yeah, no, that's okay. I can cut that. That's not a problem. Okay. Um, but these were figures whose whose shadow reaches from 1910 across the 20th century of Mexico, because they were young, dynamic, courageous individuals who were willing to risk to take incredible risks in 1910. So uh, let's concentrate for just a second. Now, now, as I understand it, just to work this out schematically, Villa Uh was in the north and Zapata was in the south. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Let's concentrate on Via for just a second. Now, he I actually supervised a paper um, written by a graduate student here that concerned, um, via, I believe it was Via's raids on Mormon communities in northern Mexico and in um, New Mexico. And this turns out to be relatively important for the story. Maybe you could say a few words about those. Do I have that right? Are there Mormons in? Sure. Okay. Let me let me bring us up to to this point. After, uh, when Huerta seized power in 1913, he connived at the assassination of President, former, or um, Madero, who had been removed from office. And at that point, Woodrow Wilson determined that, in, that the United States was not going to give recognition to any Mexican government that did not come to power through proper channels, so he wouldn't recognize the Huerta government. A civil war broke out from 1913 that lasted into 1916, and finally, the forces of Venustiano Carranza and Álvaro Obregón defeated the forces led by Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata. Woodrow Wilson at that point gave what he called de facto or halfway diplomatic recognition to the Carranza government and said if Carranza could demonstrate that his government could maintain order throughout the country, regular diplomatic recognition would follow. Villa in the north was determined to demonstrate Carranza could not maintain order. And Villa carried out a series of raids in the north to demonstrate Carranza's inability to maintain order. He attacked Mormon communities. He held up a train with U.S. mining engineers on it, uh, took 15 of them off, 
and shot them one by one, shot them to death one by one until the last guy he released who then was free to run back and tell the story in the United States. And most dramatically, in 1916, Villa sent uh, raiders across the U.S.-Mexican border to attack the military town of Columbus, New Mexico, and then return with horses. And and, uh, they planned to kidnap some people, but ended up not getting any. As a result of that, um, the United States sent John J. Pershing and and, um, an expeditionary force into Mexico to bring Villa to heel. And so that that is why Villa was involved in these raids on U.S. Uh, communities, on U.S. citizens, and on these Mormon colonies that were regarded as they were regarded as U.S. citizens. And um, what 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 transpired between um, Pershing forces and Villa's forces? Villa, well, actually nothing. What really happened is that Villa kept his men on the march and managed to avoid the Pershing expedition for a year. And the only battle that Pershing's men really fought was against Carranza's army. Um, They just didn't like each other, and so they fought a battle. But after a year, because of the looming, well, more than looming, because of what we now call World War I, the president had Pershing withdraw from Mexico, declared it a success, and as you know, shortly after that, Pershing became the head of the U.S. Expeditionary Force to Europe. Yeah, that's right, Blackjack Pershing. Blackjack Pershing. As he wanna, was called. If I can toss in one interesting story here. Please go um, ahead. Um, when Pershing went into Mexico with his troops, it was a disaster to begin with. The mobilization was as bad as the U.S. mobilization before the U.S. Spanish before the Spanish American War, and the U.S. learned a lot from that mobilization they used when they went to Europe. Um, and I should say that the German military, who had spies all over the border, just were so appalled by the the U.S. Army and its efforts to go after Villa, that they began immediately pushing for unrestrained submarine warfare. They didn't care if the U.S. entered the war or not, based on what they had seen of the U.S. Army. That's that's really interesting. I had never heard that before. I knew that there were German observers there and that this will become important later in the war, obviously, that there were uh, relations between the uh, Mexicans and the the Germans, but I had never heard that they were there as observers and um, felt that the United States had operated so poorly in the Mexican theater that they didn't care. That's that's quite remarkable. Um, So go ahead. If I could just add, so when Pershing went in, um, what he did is collect up a bunch of Chinese who were in Mexico because of the anti-Chinese immigration policies of the U.S. Chinese would come to northern Mexico and look for a chance to come across. Uh, Pershing rounded up about 300 of these Chinese who worked 
in as cooks, laundrymen, other sorts of things with his army. And when Pershing withdrew, he brought those 300 out with him. And of course, because of the anti-Chinese legislation, there was a question about what to do with them. Those guys, those Chinese all ended up on military bases. They were restrained to to military bases until 1922, when Congress finally said this is ridiculous and passed a law allowing those who were still alive freedom to enter the, the country. And most of them went to San Antonio, and that's the origin of San Antonio's Chinese community. That's a fascinating story. I've never heard that before. It's really interesting. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you should get some graduate students to write about that. Maybe you have. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've been thinking it would be great to have them write about it, too. Yeah, no, that's a great story. Uh, it's sort of a typically American story, too. You know, we, yeah. we, uh, Americans yeah. often do something wrong and then feel bad about it later and try to make up for it rather half-heartedly. That's, that's more or less our pattern. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what happens uh, after uh, – well, d- during uh, Carranza's um, – uh, regime. What, what, what exactly does, does, does Carranza do? Carranza tried to reestablish political authority, and to do that, he wanted to revise the previous liberal constitution of 1857 to take that constitution and make it reflect um, early 20th century realities. He called a constitutional convention, and the delegates had to be people who had fought or supported his version of the revolution. They met in Querétaro, the city of Querétaro in 1916, and in early 1917 released a new constitution. They had decided to just scrap the earlier one, issued a new constitution that is a remarkable statement of social revolutionary principles that appalled Carranza, so he simply ignored it. But the Constitution was there, and later Mexican presidents, later revolutionary presidents, went about the business of trying to implement the social reforms uh, in the categories of land, the church, labor, and education. Um, then then uh, what... what, what I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the, the relationship between some of these revolutionaries and the Catholic Church, because this is an important topic. I mean, Mexico is a predominantly, almost entirely Catholic country. How, how did these various waves of revolutionaries, we haven't quite got to the, the Cristero War yet, but how, how were their relations with, with the Catholic Church, and how did the Catholic Church respond to um, the revolution itself? I think that... the. The place to begin is by saying that this group of Mexican revolutionaries, although they had different views on just about everything, all of them believed in a strong separation of church and state. They were liberals in that sense, had that kind of liberal tradition, and could only see the modernization of Mexico occurring if there was a, a complete separation of church and state and to what degree the church should be restrained in its activities or curtailed in its activities depended on the revolutionary. Um, 
the church was also split in Mexico between traditional Catholic, the traditional Catholic leadership and a young dynamic group of priests who, who had been trained, uh, whom had been trained in, um, the Vatican under the, the precepts of Rerum Novarum, the papal encyclical that recognized the need for social changes to benefit labor and some rural groups. And consequently, there are splits within the church. Beginning with the Constitution of 1917, the revolutionaries wanted to remove the church completely from politics. And they did that by denying the church leadership um, political rights. They couldn't vote. They couldn't run for office. They couldn't take part in political demonstrations. They also nationalized all church property. Um, Previously, they had seized, uh, in the 19th century, monasteries and and other properties. But in 1917, they nationalized all church property so that even the temples themselves became public-owned buildings and were administered by the government to determine what their use could be. Um, There was a brief thought about creating a national Catholic church, substituting for the communion wafer and wine with tequila and tortillas. That was an interesting effort, but it really didn't go anywhere. And a major issue was revolutionary control over education. And that ultimately meant the elimination of all parochial schools. Um, were the, was this the, most of this happens under the um, regime of Obregón? Is that correct? In the mid nineteen twenties. No, well, it begins with uh, it begins under Carranza. Actually, Obregón pushed it forward and then reaches its highest point under Callas in the from nineteen twenty four to thirty two, and continues under Cardenas from thirty six to. 40 from 34 to 40 and how, how does it how does it resolve itself what is what is the final um, state of affairs the relationship between the church and the state in Mexico as of 1940 um, both the the church leadership took a step back and the revolutionary leadership took a step back and probably the point where most people believe it's resolved is when the newly inaugurated president in 1940, um, Manuel Avila Camacho, is asked about the church issue, and he says, I'm a believer. And so most people believe that at that point they had reached some kind of detente and could move forward. Mm-hmm. I see. What? Um, so it, would it be too much to say that the, that the the big issue throughout the 1920s, 30s, and I guess 40s as well was land reform, and if that's correct, and I believe it is, uh, what exactly did these um, various uh, revolutionaries uh, do to bring land reform, and who opposed them, and how successful were they at reforming um, tenure? I think you're absolutely right that 
that land is the basic question for social change in Mexico. And the idea was to restore lands, according to the Constitution, lands would be restored to those villages and indigenous communities who had been deprived of their land during the, the Porfirian administration. So there was an effort to give land back to them. That was number one. Secondly, there was a strong belief that um, land sh should belong to the person who works it. And the way land was going to be redistributed under most of the presidents, most of the time, was to give land to communal groups. And so land would be held by communal ownership, but still would be worked on an individual basis. These are called ajidos, and this is a famous institution in Mexican history, and, and the ajidos' existence is one measure of whether the revolution is there or not. In other words, I'm trying to say when they, they simply pretty much end the ajido, the revolution ends. Um, so they tried to distribute these lands to applicants, community applicants, uh, throughout the 20s, throughout the 30s, and even into the 1950s, there's a great deal of land reform. Mexico's problem is that it has very poor land generally. It has either poorly distributed or scarce rainfall. And so the amount of land that's available is difficult. Um, it, it creates a difficulty. Large amounts of the land in 1910, perhaps as much as half, was owned by foreigners, often in huge chunks. And consequently, to obtain this land to redistribute, it was necessary for the Mexican government to expropriate land from both Mexican elites, often in exile, and foreign foreigners who immediately appeal to their governments, the United States, Great Britain, or France, without success. And so, the, the, yeah, without success, you say, so there was a tremendous amount of land redistributed. Yes. Yes, over, over half, no, I would say closer to three-quarters of Mexico's arable land was redistributed in this period from 1910 to 46. Was there a large uh, flight of elites, uh, sort of uh, people who had come to prominence during the Porfirian regime? And I ask this because there's a, a similar sort of thing that happens in the Soviet Union. I, I, it's much more, I, th I think, more violent. I, I don't really know uh, the, how many how many casualties there were in the, the Mexican case, but there's there's a great flight of um, former elites to Western European countries in the United States. Is a similar sort of thing happened during the revolution in Mexico? Yes, there's a. There's a flight of Porfirian elites, who some of whom leave with him, and went to Paris in 1911, and then an increasing number of them who fled either to uh, they wouldn't couldn't go to Western Europe because of World War One, but fled to the United States, either to New York, Chicago, or L.A. were major areas where these refugees were. Um, in one 
humorous development, um, what became re Republic Films was moving from New York to Hollywood and thought it would be great to film Pancho Villa and Revolution. And they went out, got Villa to fight a battle at the right time of day to film, put the film in the can, got back on the train to go to L.A., and because of the heat and improper care, the film was lost. The public then went up to Bakersfield and in the Central Valley and recreated this battle, and they used Mexican extras who were Porphyrian refugees to participate as the revolutionaries. That's very funny. There's a there's a parallel in Russian history that every Russian historian knows, and that is the storming of the Winter Palace. Everyone has heard of the storming of the Winter Palace uh, in St. Petersburg. Well, the, the storming of the Winter Palace was um, a kind of a drunken affair in which um, a, a large mass of urban dwellers who were uh, uh, very down at the heel and sick of the um, war and the imperial government broke into the the uh, Winter Palace and raided uh, its extraordinarily extensive stock of alcohol. Uh, and they got, so with this, when the Bolsheviks came to power, this really didn't um, fit their image of the way in which the Winter Palace should have been um, should have been taken. So they recreated it a couple of years later for the purposes of a film. And, and for many years thereafter, they pretended as if this was the real thing. So first time tragedy, second time farce or something like that. I don't really know. Um, so let's, um, let's talk here's, this is a, I think this is an issue that, that would be of interest to many American listeners. Um, and that is, uh, did the um, indigenous populations of Mexico, I, I think they're called Indians as well. What, what role did they play in the revolution and, and how did the revolutionary parties and figures, um, how, how did they relate to the indigenous population? Um, the revolution, from one perspective, is primarily an effort to provide appropriate opportunities and equality to rural peoples who are primarily indigenous or mestizo, that is, some blend of indigenous and and European uh, ethnic stock. The goal was most clearly expressed by the Minister of Public Education, Jose Vasconcelos, and Vas Vasconcelos wrote a book about the cosmic race, and his definition of the cosmic race was the blending of Mexico's indigenous and European ethnic stock to create this new people of hybrid vigor. His educational campaign um, during his term of office in the 1920s as minister was aimed to educate and to provide economic opportunities to the indigenous population. This remains today a critical issue in Mexico, but was especially uh, talked about in these kinds of terms, that is, to make the indigenous Mexican during the period of the revolution, that is, until 1946. Um, I say that because today in Mexico there's much more of a discussion of maintaining indigenous ethnic culture rather than subsuming it into Mexican nationalism. 
Mm, I see. I see. And so, how do how do uh, indigenous people in Mexico look back upon the revolution? Do they they look back upon it favorably? Then, um, it would be a gross generalization, but I'll go ahead and make one to say generally they believe that the revolution was a half step, that it made promises, it half fulfilled them, and there's a half to be fulfilled. And I think that's one way of thinking about the Zapatistas in Chiapas, for example. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. So let's um, let's move forward just a little bit um, to um, now. Even before I read this book, and I, I think many Americans know about the PRI. We, we we don't know what PRI stands for, and we can't uh, say anything about it really, except we know that it was the party that ruled Mexico for an extremely long time in the um, 20th century. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, the 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 parties that preceded the pre and how they came to power. And I'm particularly thinking about the 1930s here and to 1946. The origin of the official party, no matter what its name is, it ends up being called the pre. Um, the origin of that came in 1928 when Alvaro Obregón was reelected president. Before taking office, he was assassinated. And in the crisis of that assassination, um, the sitting president, Plutarco Callas, created an official party. Initially, the official party was just a conglomerate of powerful personalities, for the most part, revolutionary veterans, generals in, who held power in various parts of the country, but some civilians as well. That kind of revolutionary conglomeration was put in a more standard form during the 1930s by President Lazaro Cardenas. Cardenas was motivated by the desire to prevent another Spanish Civil War from happening in Mexico. And he believed one of the best ways to do that was to take Mexico's active political population and to organize them in a mass political party organized by sectors rather than um, by class, for example. And the broad sectors were the campesino or peasant sector, the working man, uh, working person sector, the laborer sector is where I was reaching for, um, public employees that included bureaucracy, and other groups like newspaper boys and even prostitutes who were put in that sector, and then the military. Of course, this corporate structure owes a great deal to fascist political organization, and its goal is to prevent class formations. But at the same time, the way Lazaro Cardenas used this, it also was a way of controlling the right. So his goal was to prevent either the right or the left from splitting Mexico and having another civil war result. That party uh, remained a dynamic political group until probably about 1960 when it became increasingly an organization dominated by the old guard, 
became increasingly repressive. And when people talk about the PRI as this repressive political machine, they're talking about a political party that existed from about 1968 until its presidential defeat in 2000. Earlier, it was not that kind of party. It didn't have the strength, didn't have the force to do the things that it did later. Um, but would it be would it be correct to say that Mexico, for this period of time, but was a one-party state? Is that is that or, or is that just too loaded an expression to use in this context? No, I think that that's I I think that that's a fair assessment. There were um, opposition parties. They never succeeded in winning a major political uh, campaign. They never won the presidency. They never won seats in Congress. They never won a governorship. They never won a mayor, mayoral race um, before the 1960s. So, yes, I'd say it was a one-party state. But what we shouldn't compare it to something like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. They basically no. t- took power by force and then, and then um, excluded all other parties as a matter of pr- practically principle. No, not at all. Yeah, that's sort of what I would say as well. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the end of the revolution, and you end it um, in... 1946. Uh, Why is that? Um, I ended in 1946 for a couple of reasons, and I've become increasingly um, interested in the idea of generations. And the revolutionaries who first seized power in 1910, that group of revolutionary veterans remain in power until 1946. There's a shared revolutionary experience. And here I want to say that during the worst period of fighting, that is 1910 to 1920, one in seven Mexicans died. So we're talking about uh, roughly 2 million lives lost. Um, You know, to what extent that was due to deprivation or the Spanish flu, it's not clear. It's a huge number. The experience of being in the revolution, I believe, shaped people's attitude. It also meant that the individuals who survived and took office were largely a group of young men from the provinces, risk-taking, who um, they were willing to take risks. They didn't, for the most part, have much of an education. And they believe that direct action was the best way to solve any kind of problems. Um, There were also women involved, and I think the women were even a stronger example of a group who seized the opportunity of revolution, of participation, um, to, to make their way up the social ladder and to become prominent in Mexican life. That changed after 1946. A new generation came to power in 1946 with Miguel Aleman. Miguel Aleman and the people around him, they were called the pups because they were these young guys whose fathers had been in the revolution. And they had all the benefits of growing up with powerful in powerful families. They were well-educated. They had never, for the most part, known poverty. Uh, They were used to seeing power exercised. Uh, 
And so they, they approach things differently. The highest number of co college graduates holding office in Mexico occurred in the 1890s under Diaz, again from 46 to 52 under Aleman, and then again recently with the Fox administration. These are like technocratic um, administrations. That's why I think that 46 is the end of the revolution. But I'd be happy to discuss some other possible ends, ending dates. Yeah, well, I was going to say that um, there's a similar sort of thing that happens in Soviet history, a kind of turnover of generations. Um, you know, again, you have this generation of the revolution, uh, 1917, and then uh, roughly they're all dead by the 50s. Uh, uh -huh. and, and thereafter, um, a new generation uh, slowly takes over. Um, people that had had some experience with World War II, that was their formative experience. Um, and uh, World War II was fought by the party. And so their entire careers had been, uh, had been, had been undertaken w within the party context. Uh, they weren't about taking power and changing things. They were about maintaining power and keeping things roughly the way that they were. And um, the Soviet Union really loses energy as a result of this second or even third generation. And uh, uh, I was just telling my students the other day that uh, there's a reasonable case to be made that the Soviet Union fell um, because the uh, mission, so to say, of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, was um, forgotten by this second and third generation, that they were serving their own interests and not serving the interests of um, the ideals which they claimed to hold. But uh, I won't push the, um, the similarity between the Soviet case and the Mexican case any further. I'll probably get a lot of email about it in any event. Um, but let me just ask you, you, you did mention that, that there were other possible ends for the revolution. Um, what, what, what are those, just very quickly? Well, the one, I'll, I'll start with the one that annoys me absolutely, uh, and that is it's partly as a result of the adoption of um, the jargon of the new cultural history. And that's the group that describes 1920. Everything after 1920 is post-revolution. And I think the bottom line on this argument is that by 1920, it was clear Mexico was not going to undergo a proletarian revolution according to the Marxist model. Consequently, there are those historians who simply say it was over. I, of course, I disagree with that in, in major ways. Um, other possibilities are 1938, when President Cardenas consciously shifted Mexico's social reform movements away from land and the countryside to industrial development. And so the shift in target programs, I think you could, you could use, and in a textbook that Colin and I wrote together, we did use 1938 as the end of the revolution. Another possibility is 1952 when the veterans of the revolution make an attempt to come back to power and they're defeated. So that would be fun to play with. Um, do, I was going to say, do Mexican historians get together at Mexican history conferences and fight about these things? Um, mostly we get together in bars and fight about them. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, things are a little more formal conferences. But, I see. Uh, I see. Uh, and many people, and I was one of them, and and, and I like this argument too. Uh, look at 1968, the massacre at Tlalte Loco, the massacre of university students as the end of any sense of revolutionary idealism, any commitment to Mexico's emerging middle class, any commitment to Mexico's new uh, leaders coming from the university, that it ends in 68. Mm-hmm. I see. And, and then finally, well, there are two, two other quick options, 82 with the end of a series of devaluations when life as Mexicans had known it, they're under the official party and it, it simply was impossible to to continue to lead the life they had known before because of economic deprivation. And other people would say, well, 2000, the revolution came to, was initiated in 1910. It managed to stay in power through various ways until the year 2000 when the PRI was defeated in the presidential elections. You guys have a lot to talk about. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I guess I would suggest anyone thinking about a career in history to go into Mexican history because I don't think there's any similar sort of uh, argument in the Russian field anymore, for example. But maybe there is. I don't know. I haven't really followed it very closely. Well, Bill, I, sh- I should say we've taken up a huge amount of your time today, and we really appreciate that. Uh, it's a terrific book. Let me close with um, what is our final question on new books in history, and that is uh, what are you working on now? What is your next project? Well, I have two projects going, and I think they're both fantastic. I'm I'm thinking I need to reevaluate Jose Vasconcelos, the Minister of Education in the 1920s, and what I want to look at particularly is Vasconcelos's campaign to get to know rural Mexico, and he did that by hiring a series of photographers, a group of photographers, to go out and photograph rural life and make a record of what it was like. Some of those photographs end up serving as the model for artists who make Mexican calendars that you can see in any Mexican restaurant in the United States or in Mexico or a barbershop or anywhere else. And I recommend the book called Mexican Calendar Girls by Angela Vialba to anybody who wants to read about this fascinating turn of events. He also sent people out to record the music of rural Mexico. And I haven't been able to find the music that these collectors brought together, sort of like Alan Lomax working for the Smithsonian. And I want to do that because I think it has an impact on Vasconcelos' thinking about the cosmic race and about revolutionary programs for the nation. Um, my other project, Marshall, I have to say is I want to write a book about Malbec, the, the Argentine varietal, um, because this particular wine has an incredible history from France to Russia um, to South America, and of course it's produced in Australia and New Zealand, not in great amounts. But I, I don't, I don't think you can go wrong with a history of wine of any sort. I, that, that sounds pretty terrific to me. I, I imagine that you'll have a lot of um, 
you'll have a lot of publishers that want to taste that project, if you know what I mean. Anyway, right. yeah. Well, again, uh, Bill, we've been talking to Bill Beasley about uh, his new book that he co-authored with Colin McLaughlin, and that book is called uh, Mexico. Mexicans in Revolution, 1910 to 1946. Uh, Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again, and we look forward to having you again on the show. Thanks, Marshall. I'm, I'm going to write as fast as I can okay. so you have a chance to All talk right. again. <laughs> All right. That sounds great. Take care now. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Bill Beasley about his new book, Mexicans in Revolution, 1910 to 1946. Actually, he co-authored the book with Colin McLaughlin. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope that you have a great week. Thank you.